Opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and do not necessarily reflect views held by the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Welcome, welcome, welcome. In the famous words of Anthony. Um, This is From Grape to Glass, sponsored by Blind LGBT Pride International. And uh, we are waiting for um, Hobie to join us. Maybe he's having issues finding the Zoom. In the meantime, I will get us started. As you all know, it's a convention tradition that a BPI always um, has a wine presence at, uh, at every ACB national. And uh, we started uh, last year with the pandemic and, you know, with the incorporation of the virtual, uh, everyone was asking us, how are you going to do wine? And uh, I said, we'll figure out a way, but wine has always, always has a presence at the table. So we started our wine wisdom conversations and they've gotten very popular. They, you know, been virtual last Friday. Um, we had a session. If you missed that one, it's going to be up in podcast feed after the convention. And uh, uh, tonight we're going to learn all about um, the process of how we go from grape to glass. And uh, Friday, Hobie and I will jointly conduct a workshop uh, and, and have a kind of like a back and forth conversation in uh, two perspectives, which is wine makers and wine drinkers. So he's going to be talking uh, on the uh, side of the winemakers. And obviously, I'm going to be mirroring uh, on the consumer side, on the wine drinkers. So stay tuned. I believe that session is 5.30 on Friday, 5.30 Eastern. And uh, stay tuned for that. Uh, because I think that's, if not the last, it's one of the last actual workshops uh, for convention. So what better way than to clink and toast with uh, wine? And I hear Hobie in the attendees. <laughs> my apologies, you guys. How are you? Hey, Hobie. I had to restart my computer just at the wrong time. You know how technology just <laughs> loves us all the time? Yeah. <laughs> No worries. Well, I, was, I was giving the intro and welcoming everyone and talking about wine, <laughs> but uh, go ahead. The floor is yours without further ado. Well, thank uh, you. Take us from grape to glass. Give me one second, you guys. I'm just going to pull up some slides to show that have some uh, some sound effects. I just want to get my screen. Um, Does this uh, presentation have any uh, continuing education units or whatever they're called? No, we okay. don't have any continuing we don't have any CEUs here, uh, right. unless you're getting CEUs in wine. And then for sure, anytime. Trust me, I, I, I tried, Hobie. I tried. <laughs> and, um, yeah, so I'm, I'm really excited. I just want to give a disclaimer that, um, you know, for educational purposes, I'm, I'm showing content that I found online. A lot of this content isn't my own, uh, but I feel okay about it because of educational educational purposes. So I, I put together a presentation with some sounds and some some uh, some things that I'll just walk you through and describe as we go. But we'll start out by just talking a little bit about um, 
how grapes, you know, how wine sort of originated. So we'll, we'll start with, um, you know, just considering how wine is is made in in terms of, you know, what does it come from? What are its roots, literally, and and also figuratively, and somewhat in a humorous way. And um, you know, how does how does that all happen? How does that all work? So first of all, wine has been made for millennia. If you look back in history books, since antiquity, people have been making wine and and producing it and celebrating with wine. Because we all know that wine uh, makes us feel a certain way. And that is usually fairly relaxed. And I think people find themselves able to talk a little more when they're um, having wine. And it, it, you know, it makes you feel good and allows you to, to really have a, a nice time with friends or celebrating the god of wine Dionysus and Bacchus in either Greece or Greek or Roman philosophy sharing my screen here give me one second yeah okay so so what I had first is a, is a slide showing I'll just uh, back up here there we go that's just a title slide from grape to glass I'll describe these as we go just a, a, a um, great to, from grape to glass presented for Blind Pride International by Dr. Hobie Wedler so the history of, of wine really, like I said, dates back many, many uh, thousands of years. And people discovered that when they harvested grapes and held on to them for a while, they started to break down. And the thought is that the flavor of broken down grapes then, when it really wasn't very controlled, was probably not very delicious. And... Um, you know, it's just just part of the part of the equation. Basically, rotten grapes. However, um, if if grapes were allowed to sit in one place, like piled in one place, and then allowed to ferment without a bunch of oxygen, that maybe tasted a little bit better. And people found that when they tasted that and drank that, they felt really good, and uh, or maybe kind of sick the next day um, if they had too much. And this is sort of the idea of how wine came to be, and it's uh, very much unknown who the first consumers of wine were, but it, it's very well known that, that wine has been popular uh, throughout um, really the entire uh, Mediterranean. Uh, so Greece, uh, Italy, uh, Croatia, up and down the Sunshine Coast and uh, Carnation Coast, I should say, and up into Serbia and all over that area, all into Eastern Europe, the Czech Republic, um, Wine has been has been consumed and, and really quite enjoyed. And there are a few different places now that produce wine. Wine regions, so we're going to fast forward uh, thousands of years to wine today and how we make wine today. I'm going to focus on new world winemaking techniques, but uh, we should say that wine is broken up into both new world and old world. So old world regions are regions that have been making wine for a long time, really, really long time. Uh, Europe is considered old world. Uh, Asia is considered old world. But the Americas and Australia and New Zealand and South Africa are all considered new world winemaking regions. And the distinction there is really, you know, they've only been making wine for the past few hundred years. So they haven't been in in the old world, in France, in Italy, Germany, um, Portugal, Spain, you name it. Winemaking is very regulated. And by the way, I'm cramming an entire lecture on on like 
an entire course that one could teach um, into an hour and 15 minutes. So forgive me if we end up going really quickly through some stuff here. But suffice it to say, and I'm leaving out all sorts of unique appellations that and ways they classify wines in the old world. But in the old world, you know, you really have wines uh, that are made in a very traditional ways and very controlled. I'll give you one example from France. Those are uh, AOC, Appellation de Origine Controle, right? I'm not trying to speak French here, but that's what it is. And AOC wines make up about, I'd say, 35% of, um, of all French wines. And that can be an, a, an appellation as large as Burgundy or as small as a single vineyard in Burgundy or as small as a single chateau in Bordeaux, right? So the appellations go from being very large to, to very small. The other wines, then those are controlled. They have to be tasted by a board of decision makers who decide, yep, this wine can be considered AOC Burgundy or AOC uh, tea, you know, any, any of these. And, uh, you know, they're, they're very controlled and they have to be made in a particular way. So although, and, and I, I have no, no disrespect or um, none of that at all for old world winemaking techniques, they're just very traditional and they have to be done in a very particular way. By the way, in France, uh, Van de Pace is uh, wine of the country, basically country wine, peasant wine, and Van de Tabla is uh is wine for the table, basically what we'd call table wine. And, and that's how they're, they're classified. And AOC wines, Appellation de Origen Controle, are definitely your highest end wines. Uh, Van de Pace and Van de Tavla don't really need to go through the same rigorous controls that Appellation de Origen Controle wines tend to go through. And like I said, the winemaking is very traditional. We come to a place like the United States or Australia or New Zealand, and there really aren't any rules that we need to follow, right? I mean, there are rules, there are certain rules that in, in certain areas where we can't add sugar to the fermenting wine. We'll talk about this as we go, and I'll explain sort of the, the process of how we make wine. But really, you know, there, there aren't nearly as many rules. So that means that winemakers get to take a lot more liberty and express themselves personally a lot more through the wines that they make. So wines of the old world are definitely art forms, works of art, but I would also add possibly that, that maybe there's a little more opportunity for, or I would argue that maybe there's a little more opportunity for creative expression in the new world because there aren't, winemakers are not bound to so many rules, if that makes sense. Now, I want to talk to you just about what wine is. So there are ultimately two ingredients that form wine. One is yeast and one is grapes. And they're definitely not in that order. Yeast is a very small part of what makes up wine. It's mostly just grape juice. Okay. And what I would say is that um, when, we, when we make wine and when we think about wine, it all starts with the grapevine. Okay. It really has to just by nature of what it is. It, it starts with a really good grapevine. That brings me to my next slide. So we've got slide two here. This is a vineyard uh, that is in dormancy. So what we see here are a lot of grapevines that don't really have leaves on them. They look like sticks. It's the winter time. They're basically, you know, just grapevines that don't really have foliage. They don't have grapes on them. 
We should also say that grapevines are definitely perennials, which means they live for many years. And some grapevines, you've probably heard of old vine wines, those come from very uh, old vines, some well over 100 years old, and they will produce grapes year after year. And effectively what happens is each year, canes grow from uh, small uh, areas of where, the, where the branches, the wood sort of branches out and forms a new fresh cane. And off of those canes, which are trained up trellises generally, as we can see here, and off of those canes, we, um, we get leaves growing, uh, other, other canes that branch out, and ultimately buds. And those buds that form are what will form the grapes that we see hanging on the vine that will ripen, that we harvest, that we turn into wine. Now, good practice typically, this is not always done, so don't, don't you know, none of this that I'm saying is absolute. But typically, old canes are pruned off of the vines, most old canes, leaving just the, the main vine structure, the trunk, you, know, you don't want to cut the vine down. It's typically a good practice to trim away or prune away canes that, you know, that, that were from that year. So they've done their job, they've grown great fruit, you cut them away, right? And then usually about, and at this, by the way, I'm going to be talking in North American uh, sort of sort of times, right? Um, growing season, if you will, uh, down in South America and in um, our, uh, yeah, so so areas like Argentina, um, Australia, and New Zealand, or areas that are south of the equator, uh, they tend to follow a cycle that's exactly six months off of ours in North America. But we're going to be talking in terms of North America. I'm going to bring you a little bit of a timeline here. So. Typically, we cut away those canes, those old spent canes, uh, between November and February. That's those that quarter of the year, so to speak, is when the vines are what we consider dormant. Now, sometimes fruit hangs on until November, and we harvest it deliberately very late to get very high sugar content, or to get what's called noble rot or bunch rot, if you will, or botrytis which forms certain, uh, you know, very, very high-end varietals like, um, or styles of wine, I should say, like, uh, like Sauternes, which we find in France. Now about February, this is, these are dates are changing a little bit. They're getting a little bit earlier as our climate warms, but this is about what happens. You can safely use this, this date range, okay? About February 1st, between February 1st and February 15th, we tend to have early growth, which we see leaves growing out, basically what's called first leaf is, uh, is, is a vine's first leaves that start to grow out of the main branch structure and form new canes. Those new canes, of course, the leaves grow. Leaves are like solar panels, right? They're there to bring the vine, the food that it needs to, to grow back, if you will, after we pruned everything away. Now, the two things that any one of us need to survive are food and water. And we use our food and water to uh, interact in the world and ultimately to reproduce. Plants are the same way. And grapes are literally their seed pods. More on that in a minute. Now, as more leaves form, as more canes and more branches form, they're trained, as, most, as a lot of vines are trained, 
up a trellis typically. And that those leaves grow and bring the vine all sorts of energy and the vine digs its roots down. If it's not irrigated, if it's dry farmed, it can dig its roots down as far as 30 plus feet to get water, to access water. And if it's irrigated, it could dig its roots down that far, but it usually doesn't because it doesn't need to work that hard. Now around, usually again, this time is changing and it's getting earlier because we're getting hotter. But between March 15th and April 1st, we see bud break. And bud break is where right in the center of clusters of leaves, we see these little tiny uh, formations of buds. And those buds are seed pods, which will become grape clusters. And once those form, we have to be really careful because if there's a strong breeze or a, a heavy rain, they're very delicate and they can fall off. And if we have a bud fall off, that means that that cluster of fruit will not form. So here in California in 2018, we had a huge rainstorm that took place about May 15th. And we lost a lot of grapes uh, in Napa and Sonoma counties. By the way, I should give a little background on myself. I, am, I live in Petaluma, which is in Sonoma County, California. And I do a lot of work in the wine industry. That's just sort of my, my passion. I earned my PhD in chemistry and realized that I, I was a sensory expert and grew up basically in the wine industry and did a lot of work while in graduate school with Francis Ford Coppola and his wineries. And, uh, and, and I'm an entrepreneur now, but I, I love wine and I love thinking about the process of how wine is made. So anyway, when we got that big rainstorm, and I remember it rained at more than an inch and was extremely windy. I would say about 35 to 40% of fruit was knocked off the vines. Oh, and it wasn't fruit yet, yet then, it was buds and flowers. Now we see fruit set, which is where we see these little itty bitty balls, clusters of, of balls, which are really clusters of grapes. But if you felt them, they would feel just tiny, like it would be hard to even recognize them as grapes. Okay. We see that set around June 15th, July 1st. And then around July 15th, we have something called uh, a process start, which is called veraison. And veraison is the process by which uh, acid, if you eat one of these little grapes, by the way, it's super acidic. These little tiny balls of fruit before it ripens, they're very acidic. And veraison is just a fancy word for ripening. Okay. So the fruit sits on the vine. And from about July 15th until it's harvested, the berries fill up with water. The vine says, okay, I need to put all my, pretty soon I'm going to be going dormant. So I need to put all my energy into that fruit so that the fruit is ready, you know, has its own nutrients and is going to attract critters, which will eat, eat it, you know, digest it, poop it out and spread the vine's seeds, right? And that's how grapes reproduce. What we see right now is a vineyard, a, a vine, particularly with ripened fruit. So this fruit is hanging and the grape clusters are huge and heavy and colorful and ready for harvest. Now, what's important to note here are a few variables. There are many factors affecting fruit quality, okay? And how the fruit comes out when it's, when it, you know, when it's harvested. One is how much water there was in the soil from the wintertime. So whether we were in a drought or not. Number two 
is how hot was it? How much heat did we get? How fast did that fruit ripen? Because the hotter it is, the faster the fruit ripens. And the drier the, the uh, climate and the, you know, the air conditions and, and weather conditions the previous winter, the smaller the berries are that we're going to get. And um, the more intense or, or extracted the wines will be. So right now in the West, we're under an intense drought. And the wine industry, some people are irrigating, but the industry as a whole is really suffering uh, because there just isn't all that much water. Now, there's another factor which just really reared its head a few years ago and mainly last year in the California wine, main California wine regions, and that is fire. Not that we're worried about vineyards themselves burning, but we're worried about smoke. Smoke taint is a real problem. And I would say that on average, 40, between 40 and 60% of all grapes grown in Napa and Sonoma counties, California's most premium wine country, were left on the vine and not even harvested because they were so adversely affected by smoke. Here's what's interesting about smoke, okay? Smoke in grapes comes in the form of, um, you know, fire that like when we, when we burn around a vine, the leaves absorb smoke and the fruit can actually take it in through the skins, right? And what's kind of interesting about that is that grapes also have a lot of sugar in them. And smoke is a little small organic molecule that basically gets wrapped around by a bunch of sugar, of cages of sugar. So sugar molecules almost form a lattice like you would if you kind of crossed your hands and kept crossing your hands over and over and over. That little tiny space in between your hands, let's say you had a lot more fingers than you really do, would trap a little uh, smoke molecule. So we don't smell them when we're actually fermenting or, you know, when we're picking the fruit, we don't smell or taste the smoke. But when we start to ferment, we really do experience that because we, we turn sugar, more to come on this, but we turn sugar into ethanol or alcohol. And we do that with yeast, their little fungi, uh, fungus cells. And fungi, fungi um, like yeast, will eat the sugar and create alcohol. But when they eat the sugar, they're also breaking down these sugar cages around all sorts of molecules that are in trace amounts but give wine the amazing flavor that it has. But if you have adverse compounds that can do the same thing, you know, like smoke taint, you can ruin a wine in the same way, okay? So that's sort of how all these different factors in a growing area can affect wine grapes as they're on the vine. Any winemaker will tell you that you can't make a good wine without excellent fruit. Or the wine they can make is only as good as the fruit they started with, okay? And winemakers work with viticulturalists and vineyard managers to figure out, okay, when is the optimal time to pick? They're out there tasting fruit. They're measuring the amount of sugar, which is measured in something called bricks, by the way, which is uh, grams of sugar per 100 grams of liquid. And they're oftentimes taking leaves away so that grapes can get more sun and get more color, right? And essentially during this time, it, it's, it's, a, it's a matter of, it's like waiting for a baby to come. You know, it's like, we don't know when it's going to come, 
could be any day now, and you can decide at the drop of a hat to harvest fruit. Oftentimes, winemakers and, and vineyard managers like to harvest their fruit at the coldest part of the day, which, as you might imagine, is during the wee hours of the morning. And I'm talking crews will get there at midnight and harvest with beautiful, huge lights until sunrise. The reason winemakers often like to do this is because heat stimulates fermentation. And there are often natural, pretty much always, naturally occurring yeast cells on the surfaces of grapes, on the skin. By the way, yeast is so prevalent. You have yeast on your hands right now. Anything in your kitchen has yeast on it. If you were to take a bowl of flour and water and set it on your counter, it would absorb yeast that would come in to eat the flour and eat that sugar, just native yeast to your environment, and you could create your own sourdough starter. So I have access to a sourdough starter that was created in 1912 here in Petaluma from yeast from a particular farm. You know, someone made it. And if you keep feeding it, you can virtually keep this stuff alive forever. It's really quite amazing, right? So if we think about that and we think about how that growth process can work, we know there's yeast all over. And if that yeast gets um, into the yeast that are on wine grapes, start to ferment, maybe that fermentation will happen before we want it to. A lot of winemakers like to control their fermentation. Some winemakers do not add any yeast, or it's called pitch in yeast. Adding yeast is another word for adding is pitching. And the yeast will uh, just, they will use native yeast that are on, the little yeast cells that are on the, the grapes themselves. Okay. So I think that's a really interesting thing to use native yeast instead of, um, instead of using, um, you know, yeast that you bring in that are made in a lab that you add to the wine. Let me go to the next slide here. What we see here is um, the, the setup of a winery. We can see tanks, we can see some barrels, we can, it's basically a cellar where wine is made. This is essentially the, uh, you know, where wine is made. Grapes are brought in in big bins into wineries in whole clusters. And then those clusters are essentially, um, you know, they're, they're cool often because they're harvested late at night, early in the morning, as we learned. And they often have yeah. leaves that sort of accompany them that are that are removed. So when grapes come into the winery, they are crushed and destemmed. So all those leaves, any crud that comes in with them, you know, we don't want that in our wine. Some wines we leave clusters whole just to add a different flavor. But most of the time, um, fruit is is crushed and uh, the stems and leaves and all that stuff is removed and taken out on a conveyor belt. Now, here is where we have a concoction, a blend of skins and seeds and sweet, sweet, sweet grape juice. That grape juice is usually between 20 and 30 bricks, which is 20 to 30 grams of sugar per 100 grams or 100 milliliters, if you want to think that way, because it's mostly water of liquid. Okay. Now, here's where, the, where the, we come to a Y in the winemaking process. A, a Y meaning a print capital Y where we can go winemaking and seeds present to change the color when we start converting sugars into alcohol. Because alcohol is organic and it dissolve the, um, the, the color molecules that are there, the pigments in the skins and the seeds. Okay. What I'll say as well 
here is that white wines, that when after pressing the juice, you know, the skins and the seeds away, you're left with just sweet grape juice. Literally, that's it. And that is either added to a stainless steel tank or directly into a barrel. In the case of most Chardonnay, yeast cells are added or yeast is pitched, is what we often say. And wine is, is fermented over a period of between 10 and 15 days, usually two and three weeks, a week and a half to three weeks. And that fermentation is observed and winemakers are tasting that fermentation every day, you know, making sure that it's doing exactly what they want it to do. And they, they want to make sure that it's not stuck, which means the fermentation has stopped where they have to jump start it again, either by adding, by pitching more yeast or by heating it up or any number of things. But the, te- the ways that we tend to start or restart a fermentation is by heating it up because critters, little microbes, um, might, they like to be active or they're more active when they're a little warmer, just like we are. You know, the warmer we are, the more energy we have, the more we move around. And the different types of press we typically use are either a bladder press or a basket press. And in the case of a bladder press, we push fruit up against the walls of the press and that removes juice. And in a basket press, we kind of lower a weight down on top of a basket where the fruit is sitting to press out the juice there. Okay. Now, in the case of red wine, so what we see is a cap of a fermenter. This is red wine. And we see a fermenter with a big cap of skins and seeds on it. So how do we make red wines red? A lot of people ask. And there's a very simple way to do it. You ferment, so you pitch your yeast and heat the mixture up to start the fermentation with the skins and the seeds all present there, right? So when the skins and the seeds are there, they add pigment and that pigment creates the color of the wine and what we see when we, when we drink wine. Now, skins and seeds, as you might imagine, are lighter than grape juice in weight. So when they're light in liquid, they float up to the top. And when they float up to the top, they dry out a little bit and they literally form a cap on top of the fermentation and the fermenter. And usually about twice a day, someone has to come out and will do what's called a punch down, which is to press down on that cap, usually with a, with a device that is designed specifically for this. They push down on that cap and bring that, that cap, they reintegrate it with the juice. There's another way this can be done, and sometimes both processes are done together. The second way is called a pump over, and that's where you have a pump submerged in the liquid, and you, or just a pump on the outside and a tube submerged in the liquid, and you literally pull the juice from down below and put it over, drain it over that cap, okay? And when you do that, you create a, um, you know, you re, you re, blend that that skins and seeds in with the mixture of liquid and then you know you wait about a half a day and it floats up to the top and the process starts over again but you want the skins and seeds to be as incorporated into the liquid if you will as possible so you get as much color as possible in the wine now rosé is a not a white wine not a red wine it's kind of a blush wine or a pink wine how do we get that less contact with skins and seeds and we press it while the yeast are still in there and active before the fermentation is done. 
right? And then we, once it's pressed, we let the fermentation continue and the wine, we ferment the wine all the way, usually all the way to dryness, it's called, which is when the wine literally is, has no sugar left in it. That is what we, what is known as dry. And dry wines are, you know, they're, they're not, dry rosés are not as colorful as skins and seeds before finishing up with the press, or before finishing up with the fermentation. With true red wines, we typically leave the skins and seeds in, uh, you know, there all the time in the, in the fermenter until the fermentation is done to, you know, dryness. So we, we have all of our fermentation done, at which point we press away our skins and our seeds, usually using either a basket or a bladder press, as described earlier, and then we put the wine in oak barrels. So we'll go to our next slide here. With barrels. And in the case of pretty much all red wines, we add them to a barrel where they age. There we go. Sorry, guys. This is a, know uh, my slides, but I should should have known them a little bit better. I, I built them uh, a while ago. Uh, this is a barrel room that we see here, and uh, or a barrel that, that basically has red wine aging in it. And another way to do that, so what we want is for our wine to get some oak in it. Okay, we can either do that by putting the wine directly in a barrel or by putting the wine in a big stainless steel tank and putting oak chips or pieces of oak barrels into that big tank like you would put a tea bag into a into a cup of boiling water to steep it out to create tea. Now, I could go on for hours about oak, but what I'll say here is the three main types of oak used in the wine industry are American oak, Hungarian oak and French oak. French oak grows the slowest, which means it's the most dense or the hardest oak, okay? Um, that is used for, for most, most higher-end wines, although a lot of winemakers are using Hungarian and American oak now. But being at, you know, the hardest of the oaks typically lets less flavor out over a period of time, Right. So American oak grows the fastest. And if you, if you imagine a softer wood, it grows really quickly, relatively quickly, and you add liquid to that, like wine, after toasting the oak, you, um, it, it's going to extract, the wine's going to seep into the wood faster and extract out those flavors all that, of the wood all that much faster, right? So you're going to get a really strongly flavored oak wine more quickly than with the hardest or slowest growing oak, which is French oak. Hungarian oak is like Goldilocks. It's the happy medium, right? It's, it, it grows about right in the intermediate speed between American oak and French oak and uh, adds, you know, flavor over, over time. Uh, French oak is the, the most subtle, I would say. American oak is the most harsh and Hungarian oak is right in between. And we're using a lot more Hungarian and American oak in the industry these days, actually. Sometimes when we're aging Chardonnay, we concrete egg. That's an amazing tool. We can even ferment Chardonnay in these eggs. It's fairly fairly new tool, but it um, basically the shape of an egg, the very ovular shape of an egg, allows wine to the wine to sort of circulate based on temperature and really slowly, um, you know, age at, at a nice low temperature. And when we ferment in the concrete egg, it ferments very slowly because it's fermenting at a relatively low temperature. The concrete is, is an insulator and keeps the temperature quite low around, around that liquid. 
a lot of Chardonnays that I've had out of out of eggs are um, very mineral rich. They get the minerals from the concrete and they just have incredible flavor to them. So just wanted to throw that out there that a lot of winemakers nowadays are using uh, concrete to, to ferment in. While the wine is in, you know, aging, winemakers are tasting it a few times a week at least, I, you know, figuring out what it tastes like, getting it where they want it to be, maybe adjusting the acid level a little bit until they think it's time for bottling. Now, before we bottle wine, we can do a couple of things. Number one, we can let it sit, the most common thing. And I think the best thing to do is to let it sit in a very, very cold tank at about 32 and a half degrees Fahrenheit or as close to freezing as we can get it. And that allows for stabilization. And what we're doing there is we're allowing uh, crystals that are in salts, really, that are in or salts, really, that are insoluble, virtually insoluble in water or wine to settle out. So we don't end up with a bunch of, you know, crystals that don't dissolve in the wine in, in the bottle right? Those crystals are called potassium hydrogen tartrate. And potassium hydrogen tartrate doesn't dissolve in water or wine, but it falls out of solution when we get it cold enough, just above freezing. And that mean, that makes it so that we don't have a bunch of other ions in the wine and the wine doesn't have all this chutney, all these, all these uh, crystalline solids in it that make it hard to pour and you know, make you need to, to pour it in what's called a decanter. In this case, uh, the wine is chilled and then basically a big block of this potassium hydrogen tartrate forms at the bottom of that cold stabilization tank. That's what it's called. The other direction we can go, and this tends to be done to a lot of cheaper wines and, and a lot of cooking wines, you know, wines that are branded as cooking wines. By the way, I would never cook with something I wouldn't drink. So I don't, I don't use those gallon jugs of cooking wine necessarily when I cook. What happens is instead of cold stabilizing, Immediately before bottling, the wine goes into an ion exchange column. And that's where all the little potassiums and the potassium hydrogen tartrate are replaced with sodium ions to make sodium hydrogen tartrate or NAHT. And sodium hydrogen tartrate is perfectly soluble in water and in wine, and it doesn't taste salty. The biggest problem that I have with it is that these crystals are just not, you know, what, what you're, what you're doing is you don't have any crystals, but you're making the wine super high in sodium. And a lot of people for health reasons don't like to ingest a lot of sodium. And it's hard to know whether wines have been ion exchange treated or not. Most wines have not. But once the wine has either been passed through cold stabilization or gone through cold stabilization or, or passed through an ion exchange column, it now has very little uh, undissolved solids in it and is ready for bottling. And in a bottling line, the wine tends to go in basically a big tank and the line has bottles that are placed on a conveyor belt by people. Each bottle is picked up onto a little rotary circle that can hold any number of bottles, sometimes six, sometimes more than six. And that rotary circle just turns around and the bottles are filled with wine. Okay, so these bottles are filled with wine you know, they then go to a device that puts a cork in the top, puts a, or a screw cap, if that's what you're doing, or puts a, 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 and then, well, and then if you're not screw capping it and you're corking it, it usually puts a capsule on top, which is a foil or plastic um, top piece that goes over the neck of the bottle. And then a label is applied. So it's an assembly line. And those, those bottles are then placed down on another conveyor belt and are boxed into case boxes also by people who are working the bottling line. 
we can we should be able to hear the bottling line. You can hear. That sound is the bottles being picked up on the conveyor belt. Full bottles being set down. There it is. Now the bottling line, it's basically through with the bottling session. Now, you might think that those bottles, once they're full of wine, are totally ready to sell. And the truth is, wine, once it goes into the bottle, usually goes through a few months of what the industry calls bottle shock. And that is where it's really nervous. I like to call it nervous and surprised because it's just been jostled around from this beautiful resting place in a, in a barrel or in a tank, shoved into a bottle, moved around this conveyor belt, and it needs time to relax right? It needs time to settle into its new home. And the flavor changes a lot during this time. So winemakers are tasting wine and adjusting it and figuring out, you know, what, when, when they should release it for scoring for some of the, some of the critics to give it ratings and ultimately when to release it on out to the public. Okay. So that is how wine is bottled. When it is released to the public, it's up to the consumer to decide when to, when they want to drink it. Do they want to buy it and drink it now? Or do they want to even, maybe they have their own cellar and they lay it down for a few more years or many more years, whatever their choice is on their own. Most Americans tend to cellar their wine until right about dinner time, which I find kind of interesting. We like to drink, buy our wine and drink it soon, typically. Um, I have a cellar, so I'm a wine nerd, and I, I like to collect wine. That's just me and, and my, my passion, my little pet passion project. But wine is, wine is really something that can be, you can do anything with, and it's very versatile. So here, on this slide, we, we see a, a cellar, and, and this cellar has uh, racks of bottles in it, uh, basically of wine as it ages. Either You can imagine this either at a winery or once the consumer has purchased the wine. And finally, now we see a beautiful glass of wine sitting on a table presented. And you might think that, okay, once we open the bottle, that's when the wine's journey is done. And that is actually really far from the truth. When I drink big red wines, especially, and now some white wines, I like to open the bottle ahead of time and allow them to get air. And as they get air and, and oxidize more, the flavor changes. So sometimes when I'm going to drink a Cabernet or a Rhone-style red from France, I'll let it, let it op sit open for 24 hours. And if I'm drinking a California Cabernet, especially younger wines, I pour it in a decanter, which is an open, basically allows a certain, it's a, a glass uh, reservoir, if you will, with a, usually a fairly thin neck and then a big balloon at the bottom. It gives the wine maximum surface area so it can get as much air as possible um, as it sits in that decanter. I'll tend to decant for anywhere from two to five hours. Every hour of decanting is basically like a year of aging. So your wines can age a little bit, so to speak, as they sit in the decanter. Because when they're young, they're really tight and pouring them and allowing them to breathe 
really changes it. And then when the wine is in the glass, you can allow it to sit in the glass and open up even when it's, when it's in the glass in front of you. And finally, when we sip wine out of the glass, we can taste it and taste the flavor changing as we move oxygen. There's a technique where you can tilt your head forward and close your lips and breathe some air right through the wine. And that literally oxidizes it on your palate, which with you know red wines that have a lot of tannins in them, you'll tend to feel those tannins intensify and explode on your palate. That is really my version of grape to glass. How do we get wine from the starting point of a grape all the way through into the bottle? Again, I could have given hour-long lectures on every single part of this discussion. I took a course at Davis that was about, I don't know, 35 hours that basically went over all of what I just covered with you in slightly less than an hour. But I wanted to give you enough information to be excited and, but not so much information that we overwhelm and we don't leave time for questions. So here it looks like we have about 25 minutes left. And I would like to open up the floor to anyone who might have questions. We'll take Sylvia first. Hi, Sylvia. Hi again. How are you? Doing great. How are you? Thank you for joining us. I, I'm good. You know, I have to say I, I'm, my California cellar is low, so I'm drinking a Spanish Rioja that somebody left behind. <laughs> Spanish Rioja is delicious. It's it's really good. It's a Monticello. I, I so one of my so I had I had three questions. Now I have four, okay. um, and I, I I can not ask them if you want. But go ahead. Let's so start my, with number my one. Number one is sugar sugar level in um, wine. So I like um, a two to five. Uh, gram mm -hmm. of yeah percent of, of sugar mm -hmm. in, in a liter sure. um and and so why is it that a lot of the california wines are like higher um on the sugar level some california wines are are designed to have residual sugar in them uh that doesn't need to be fermented all the way off oftentimes california wines come in at high uh bricks you know high sugar off the vine so if they were to convert all the sugar to alcohol, you'd have a very high alcohol wine. Most wines that I've had and that I prefer personally have no sugar or very, very low sugar. They're almost bone dry. Yeah. What's your next question? Next question is, so you, you were talking about um, uh, when you decanter new, new or uh, young wines, um, every hour that you decant is like uh, a year um and that's my little thing i don't know if so, i don't know how true it you know it's, i mean it's it's said to be true and i think it's roughly true so my question is what do you consider a young wine like a 2018 cabernet like two two to three years old okay yeah um, a wine that was and, just bottled you know six months or a year ago okay and then the um i'll remember that <laughs> Um, the other question, but that's is, very, I just want to say, Sylvia, that's very yeah. subjective, right? That's, you know, I, I might, I might, if I have a 2016 and I want it to get a little bit more air in it, I might still decant that for three, four, yeah. five hours, just depending on my mood. But I, I like wines to have, I, I, you know, a lot of people like to cellar their wines for decades. And I feel like, you know, in, in some winemaking styles and the French winemaking style in particular, Aging longer 
can help the wines really improve. But in the new world, especially in California and Argentina, yeah. you know, I, I don't think the wines necessarily get better with age. They change, but I like to drink wines within 10 years of their, especially, you know, Cabernet and Pinot, things like that within 10 years of their vintage. Okay. Yeah. 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 Um, well, I, I like drinking wine. So, <laughs> I, and you know, I didn't tell you the other, the other day that I, other than Californians, uh, California wines, I really enjoy Washington wines. So my, this, these are the same pod. I, I do too. <laughs> so here, here is my um, third question. Um, so I live now in Toronto. Um, mm -hmm. I've been trying really hard to support the local industry. As you know, uh, Ontario has a yeah. big um, wine growing region. Absolutely. I, oh, first of all, a lot of their wines, a lot of their red wines, which I'm a red wine drinker, are mm -hmm. high in sugar. Yeah. And they just don't have body of yeah. a california or washington wine and that's because it's so, that's too cold so well here here's my here's the b part b of my third question mm -hmm. so i've had really great wines from cold regions so i don't know if you're um aware of stone valley vineyards in big bear california mm -hmm. so they're mm -hmm. up at like 8500 mm -hmm. Um, feet right. altitude um, they have great big cabs that taste hmm. fabulous probably because it gets so warm during the summer and it's dry uh, but I find that a lot of fruit coming out and I love wines from the Finger Lakes I love wines from Ontario they're different they're just not the same full body the wines that we find in Washington are the way they are because they're east they're in the hot desert basically and they you know or in valleys that get really warm areas that don't get super nice and warm in the winter in the summer pardon me are hard to grow really full-bodied wines and when i say warm sonoma county even in the russian oh, valley yeah. Yeah. some might consider that cool but it definitely gets warm in the, in the winter yeah yeah i mean in the summer summer uh, and, and and cool in the winter a lot of those regions, though, the vines are so dormant that they have a hard time sort of regenerating nutrients and that sort of thing in the wintertime. But I do agree with you. California and Washington wines, big reds, do have a tendency to have more acid and be a little, well, maybe not necessarily more acid, but just more depth and more extraction. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Last question, and then I'll, I'll give it to somebody else. So since you're in the Sonoma, well, Sonoma, Napa, you're familiar yeah. with that region do you know dana davis at all does that ring a bell she um dana davis does, is a yoga instructor well she also does uh wine tours didn't know that um she's out of napa okay that's i'm thinking of a different person okay a different person okay very cool no i don't okay well i'll connect you because she's do. very fun and um we've I, had a a wine tour of Napa with her. So. I love that connection. Thank you, Sylvia. Yeah. All um, right. Thank you very much. All right, Dan, go ahead. Hi, Dan. How are uh, you? I'm pretty good. This is a great lecture. I'm learning a lot. I like a, a wine with a high sugar content and a high alcohol content. I guess it would be a red, a red wine. 
Often I've a fortified been, wine, like a port. It would be what? Like a, a fortified port. wine? Fortified. So it's wines that are actually, to raise the alcohol content, uh, they actually add brandy. Can you give me a, uh, a name or something? I've been starting to fool around with drizzly and I get overwhelmed with all these. Oh, they can be overwhelming. Try port, any type of port. One might be a tawny port from Portugal. It's a little more expensive, but there are a lot of ports done in California as well. I didn't see, I've noticed that, you know, at the stores, you know, I can get a bottle of wine, like for $10 or I could pay $20 or a little more for a bottle of wine. What's, what's the main difference? You know, it often has to do with quality of grape and um, and the way that the way the fruit sort of is, you know, the more I'll give you an example. Um, Cabernet, a clone of Cabernet that grows down in Bakersfield, California, which is just hot. And if it's irrigated, the soil is super lush and it just, you know, all this um, all this heat and, and whatnot. And, but but no, the vines are not stressed at all. They don't have to work at all. So they don't produce any of these killer, yummy, flavorful compounds, which are actually compounds that the vines are giving to their fruit. They're giving all their energy and all their delicious compounds up to the fruit so that their fruit can last, even because they're in a mountainous climate, right? So in in an area that's super lush where the vine doesn't have to work hard, the fruit is really quite boring. So a ton of that fruit might sell for $500. If I were to take exactly the same, and then the berries are big and plump, by the way, but if I were to take that same clone of Cabernet and grow it up on a mountaintop called Spring Mountain, which is a famous wine growing region in the Mayacamas mountain range, you know, the same berry would be much, much smaller because it, they just don't get as big with a similar sugar content and also a lot more interesting trace compounds. Um, that would be maybe $10,000 or $10,000 a ton. So higher quality fruit that, that is more rare is going to cost a little bit more. And the price of wine, you know, some of it is marketing. I'm not going to lie. Some of it is, hey, if we charge more for this wine, people are going to think it's higher value. Is it really higher value or better fruit, I guess, right? Yeah, better fruit. It's up to your palate. I tend to like wines. I have some wines that I love that are $8 a bottle and some wines that I love that are hundreds of dollars a bottle. It doesn't you know, it just depends on personal preference. And that's one thing about wine that I really want to get make clear, if nothing else, is that wine is subjective. It is art. It starts from the earth. There is no right or wrong answer. There's not one wine that is so much better than another wine, right? It's, it's all about what you like, what your palate likes. And, you know, some wines I like are really inexpensive. Some wines I like are really expensive. And it just kind of depends on what mood I'm in. You know, another wine that I just thought of for you who likes red wines that are a little bit sweet with high alcohol, there's a South African wine called Jam Jar. Look that up and, and buy a bottle. It's really delicious if you like sweeter red wines. Okay, thank you. I'll do that. Thanks for your great question, Dan. Great, Frank, go ahead. Hi, Frank. So you talked about decanting to oxygenate your wine. Do you have you ever used these? screw on devices that screw on to the top of the bottle and then you just pour th- you know through i have yeah i have used aerators and i should have mentioned those those can be very effective for bringing right. air to wine and typically sometimes i'll even want a little bit of oxygen in my whites in my chardonnays or in my red wines in my pinot noirs and if i don't want as much oxygen as i might want in a really big cab i'll just pour my wine through those aerators yeah and they work really well 
And the interestingly, the faster you pour with those, generally speaking, the more air that they slurp up because as you're pouring, you hear that slurp, 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 slurp sound. And uh, yeah, but the more, the faster you pour, typically the more air you get. Another thing about oxygenation, I've read some things about micro oxygenation. Yes. What can you say something That's about that? That's what happens over time as the wine is aging in a cellar, if it has a cork, little tiny bits of oxygen atoms will come in through that cork and um, and and give the wine it's you know a little bit of oxygen and that's how wine ages one of the ways that wine ages over time in, in, in your cellar also chemical reactions are just happening in general you know because it's molecules are living well they're not living things but the energy of them makes them move around you know so it's cool okay i got one last question i yeah. got some some big you know big cabernets that that are probably over the hill you know 20 25, 30 years old. And is there anything you could do with them after they're past their prime? Try them, drink them. Well, I tried them. them. You know, they're, they're past their prime. Yeah, I, no, you know, you can just, you can cook with them. You can also leave them open and turn them into vinegar. Or okay. you can distill them into brandy. Brandy's just distilled wine. And if you have a little water distiller, you can run wine through it and make brandy. Well, there's a thought. Yeah, thank you. Delicious, absolutely. Thank you, Frank. Who else? I don't see any hands raised. So okay. Well, you can all reach out to me at hobiewedler.com. There's a contact me form there, and I'd be happy to answer any wine questions you have. I hope this lecture has been informative. Sure. Thank you. Thank you, Hobie. Um, um, definitely from grape to glass, Hobie. Thank you for all the valuable information that uh, you've given us tonight. Thank you guys. uh, This has been an honor. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, thank you. I hope it's been informative. It was. It was really informative and definitely uh, always a learning experience, sir. (laughs) So um, just since we have a couple of minutes, um, Kale, do we have any other hands raised? Um, Just Sylvia. If she had any, oh. if she had another question, I well, it was a, a question for Gabe um, because yeah, he, he's a, a fellow a, a spirit. It sounds like. Uh, so, what are you drinking tonight? <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, um, I I had um, a bottle. We. Um, there's there's this wine that I would recommend. It's like it's become our table wine here at the house. Um, huh. So it is um, a red blend, and it is a phantom. So look for California. No, it is yes, California. Yeah. Um, I haven't tried it. Even the bottle is very artistic because it doesn't have the paper labels. It's all painted. It's mm. like oh, wow. I've gotten the description, so so it's like golden letters painted, all the information. And oh, nice. uh, <clears throat> what I like about this blend, or what we like about this blend, is that it is. I'm not into sweet wines. I'm like Hobie. I'm a very very dry. So uh, am I. Yeah. We, we like our wine like our senses of humor are, right, Kim? <laughs> dry, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you got that right, Hobie. So uh, um, this wine, the Phantom, is is very versatile because it is while the while the base of it is dry, 
it is very rounded up at, on the finish. So, so the aftertaste of it is almost, I would say, plums, but mm. not quite. It 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 only rounds up to the point where it cuts the, you know, the 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 tannic effect or the you know the the astringent part of the wine. It gets cut up by um, I'm sure it's probably the Merlot in in the blend that cuts it up and rounds it, and it's very well balanced and it's very affordable. I have to try it. I yes. I've seen it, but I haven't been brave enough yeah. to oh, try it. Yeah. Oh, try so. it out. It, you <laughs> won't be disappointed. It makes a great table wine, and it goes well with the steak. It goes it. well with pasta, with pizza, with seafood. That's it goes great. Well with, it's very wow. versatile. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The other thing I wanted to say is um, in Hobie's last um, session, uh, he recommended that people try vanilla ice cream with a couple of uh, teaspoons of olive oil and sea salt. Mm. Did you try oh, that, Sylvia? Uh, why am I talking about it? That's so amazing. Isn't that delicious? <laughs> it is. It's crazy. It's so funny. It is. It is good. You know, a lot of desserts are, are incorporating sea salt and olive oil in them. Yeah. Nowadays. To, to do a culinary session at ACB next Let's year. Let's do a BPI well. culinary session next year. <laughs> oh, yeah. You, you folks in the West Coast and wherever else, uh, I think here in Miami, I was so excited to hear that they opened a shop. Um, there's this, I think it's originally from Oregon. This um, Salt and Straw. The, Salt and straw, yes. How did you know it's, about it? <laughs> it's the talk of the town here? Yes, yeah, salt and it? straw. It, it's an ice cream shop and it is amazing. I've tried flavors from salt and straw, like uh, obviously olive oil ice cream is my favorite. Um, lavender, um, bone marrow with dark cherries and oh, black weird. pepper. <laughs> Kind of weird. <laughs> that sounds delicious, though. Gabe, it's out, it, Gabe, it is blue cheese have, and pears. Gabe, we have not been to Miami, so um, we're going to be looking you up. <laughs> Absolutely, please. Gabe, you know what's embarrassing? I have not yeah. ever had salt and straw, but I've heard a ton about it. Yes, you should, Hobie. You should. And try the weirdest. You know what I did? I was so, I was so, I'm, I'm, I'm very OCD when it comes to food and wine and almost undecisive. No, I think I'm more decisive with wine than with food because with wine, I really know what I want. <laughs> so, so I had, they have this, this awesome, um, instead of getting like a big cup of something, you can get a sampler. And I think you get like five or six little cups of, and not so little, you know, it's, just not as big as a full scoop of ice cream, but you get like five or six, like half scoops. And that way you get to try them all. It's amazing. <laughs> That's amazing. That's great. That, yeah, and I, definitely try the olive oil ice cream. It's my favorite. I love foodies and I like wine professionals. <laughs> <laughs> this is fun. Sylvia, you'll have to join it us on Friday. So I will be there. I will rearrange my schedule um, and and be with you all tasting wine. Absolutely. Yay. So wait, before we go. So Hobie, what um, Sauvignon Blanc and which Cabernet do you recommend? 
so I can look it up. I have not chosen mine yet, but because I work with Coppola Winery, I know. and it's where I cut my teeth, I would do the Coppola Diamond Sauvignon Blanc and okay. the Coppola Claret Cabernet Sauvignon. I can't find in the, that in Ontario. In the gold net. You should. I can't find it I here in it. Ontario. Oh, okay, man. guys. Um, time is and up. We're out of time. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. All right. Any, anyone Join us you Friday. Thank you so much, All everybody. Right. Thank, you. Thank you, guys. Everyone. Thanks for streaming, Byron. Cheers. You guys are great. Bye.